I am going to, uh, I, I, this is one of those messages. I hope something good comes out of this. This is, I mean, I'm trying to do, uh, we're, okay, here's the title of the message. Comments on seeds and the seed and genealogies in Genesis. Now, if that isn't a, a whopping topic, I, I don't know how to put it all together. I honestly don't. And I haven't put it all together. I mean, there's so much more I haven't even got in here. And, and I'm just, my mind is swimming with trying to pull some of these. Anyway, that's all I'm going to do is I'm going to make comments then and see if something happens good out of this and see what the Lord has for us this morning. So let's pray first. Lord, we pray that you will bless us and guide us as we look to your word. May our hearts be open to Uh, what you have to show us and may you give me freedom of speech and and thought to express what needs to be said in Jesus name I pray amen okay so obviously we're going to turn to Genesis and um, like I said there's going to be probably a lot of ums and hums and uhs this morning so I can figure out at least I'm not going to holler and yell like one guy says, uh, uh, most preachers, they just get up there and, and holler and yell until they can think of something to say. And I don't want that to be the case this morning. So anyway, here we go. Genesis chapter 1. The first occurrence or first mention of the word seed is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. And quite frankly, it's significant in more ways than one. <clears throat> But in 111, it says there, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. A couple things I wanted to comment here. Number one is that um, you'll notice that the herbs, the trees, the fruit trees, and so on were created first. You know, sometimes we get that question was the chicken created first or was the egg? Was the, were trees created with tree rings? I don't know, but I do know that the trees were created here before the seeds were created. The seed was in the herb, and the seed was in the fruit of the tree, and it was produced by that which God had created and made. The second thing that I want to note here is that the seed produced after its kind. And that's an important statement also. Not just genetically, although that's that impo- as important as that is. Uh, you know, it, like produces like. And that's a big argument used with evolution uh, to counter evolution is that um, you know, dogs always produce dogs. Cats always produce cats. <laughs> you don't see anything, making anything different. And peach trees produce peaches. And 
grape vines produce grapes and so on. And because of that, God saw that it was good. Seed that produced after its kind. Now hopefully if I remember, I, can, I want to come back to that. Or if we have time, either one. In chapter 1, in verse 29, it says there that God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed. Now this is after he had created man and woman. In verses 26 and, and in verse 28. And he says there in 29. That he gave you every herb bearing seed. Which is upon the face of the earth. And every tree in which is the fruit of a tree. Yielding seed. You notice the emphasis there. They yield seed. To you it shall be for meat. Or food. Now. With that in mind, chapter 3, verse 15. Of course, a lot, of, a lot, or some, and a lot of what I'm going to say is presupposing that we understand the Genesis story. We don't need to go back and, you know, fill that in uh, so much that we have to spend our time doing that so we can focus on this idea of the seed here. Now, in verse 15, we have uh, the seed mentioned again. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, you cannot possibly imagine the, the, all the articles and the controversy that, that exists over the translation of that verse, let alone the interpretation, uh, which way to go. Um, I'm convinced from what I've read that uh, where the King James says, says it shall bruise thy head would be better to say he shall bruise thy head, although it's neuter. So it could go either way. Uh, but I don't want to go into that. That's not what I want to deal with this morning. The main point here is that the woman's seed uh, is the key thought. And because of this, many would call this the, the proto-evangel, just meaning the first gospel in this, in this passage here. And <clears throat> you'll notice some things out of this uh, verse. Number one is that uh, there's, a, there's a person in the seat of the woman, you're dealing with a person, there's suffering in the prediction that his heel would be bruised. And that is in this seed. And then lastly, there was going to be victory in that he would bruise the serpent's head. Now, if you go to several other translations, you'll find that they take the word bruise and they'll translate it harshly, like crush. And they argue over that word. It's not supposed to be so harsh, crush, but because it's the same word. Bruise, bruise, crush, crush, you know, strike at, strike at, or whatever other terminology that the other translations use. Um, the point being is that one was going to gain the victory over the other. 
okay? Now, since man was originally created to have dominion, and we, saw, we see that back in verses 26 and, and 28 of chapter 1, let them have dominion or rule over God's creation. And because that rule was lost with Adam, and that has affected us, of course, it seems clear from a passage like this that God is giving us a foretaste, a foretaste, whether it's a prophecy, you can call it a prophecy, but nonetheless a foretaste of one that is coming, this one who would bruise the heel or the head of the serpent and he would gain the victory over him and restore man back to that original position of rule and dominion. Now, quite frankly, if you read uh, quite a, a bit of the, of the newer commentaries, articles, books, whatever, uh, are referred to this as a royal line, a kingly line, this early in Genesis, that it's being brought out and intimated here that God is immediately active in restoring man to this proper place. Now, I may have mentioned in the past, I don't know if I have for sure, a book I picked up over at Bob Jones University by the former uh, head of the Bible department in the university there. Um, I can't even remember the uh, Royal Destiny, or um, I think uh, Royal Destiny, Majestic Destiny, something on that order. I can't remember the name of it now for sure. But he points out that very thought, that early, early on, God is already seen to be active in putting in place a plan from the moment of Adam's disobedience, a plan to restore and keep alive a continuous seed from the original first Adam. Ultimately, of course, to be fulfilled and finalized in the second Adam, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you remember that in chapter 2, um, not chapter 2, Um, well, let's see. Man, it's only two or three chapters here. Uh, four, I'm sorry. Chapter four, where Cain slew his brother Abel. Okay, so just think that through. And by the way, that, that well, I'll get to it. Um, so in the very beginning of of God's institution of this godly line, this seed line, as it were, we have two, two men, two sons, born. And of course, you know the story well enough that Cain slew his brother Abel, and Abel had been the one who brought the proper offering, and Cain did not. And Cain slew the one through whom 
God had originally intended to keep the seed alive in the godly line. But if you turn, if you go, well, not turn, go to the end of chapter 4 in verse 25 then, we see that God is active in maintaining that line and keeping it open all through the book of Genesis. And that's really what I want to focus on here is the idea that there is a clear, distinct line through the book of Genesis pointing out to us that this royal line is being kept. Just like God kept the royal lines active through David in the, in the uh, divided kingdom, in the southern kingdom, so God was doing so here in the early stages in the book of Genesis. And in verse 25, it says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said he, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Now, there's three phrases there, I think, that are significant that help us to see the importance of this idea of a seed line. Number one is, it says there, hath appointed me. And the second one is, another seed. Some translations put, translate that another child. But I think seed is important here to understand that. And then the phrase or the word instead of Abel. In the place of Abel. In, in other words, in order to keep that seed line going right from the very beginning, God brought in another child, Seth. And he took the place of Abel. Now, from there, hope I got my notes in order here. Oh, boy. Um, well, also, I, don't, I still struggle with this one here, but it says in verse 26, And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos, and then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. I, I, this insertion here uh, of calling upon the name of the Lord at this particular juncture, I'm still working on that. But nonetheless, this appears to me to be a strong indication to me that God was replacing Abel, the one who had the more excellent sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, to keep the seed alive as Galatians 3.19 tells us, till the seed should come. And of course, it's going to be many, many centuries uh, until that seed comes. And as we look through Scripture and examine the genealogies, we know that God has kept that line faithful all the way through. Now, of course, commonly, we want to look at King David and acknowledge that God has kept alive the seed line through David 
uh, all the way down to Messiah, but he's also done that right from the very beginning with Adam. From Adam to Abel to Seth to Enos. And in chapter 5, verse 1, you see this genealogy mentioned here. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God, made he him. And, it, and, and you, when, you, when you read through this genealogy and the genealogy that's given to us over in chapter 10, the two things that I would like for us to note here... <clears throat> And if you'll look at your little piece of paper that I handed out, you'll notice, and I'm sorry that it got light on me there. It was hard to copy it and keep it nice and dark. But you'll notice um, the first word there is linear, and the second one says segmented, and it's referring to genealogies. You'll see that there is a linear genealogy, and then a what scholars call a segmented genealogy. In the segmented genealogy, you'll notice that there are branches coming off. So in other words, just as if you and I were keeping a family tree, we would show sons and daughters and the ones to whom they married, and then the children that they had, and I mean, you know how those things, and then they just grow massively big and hard to keep up with. But that's what you find in here. You'll find segmented genealogies, but that's not what we have here in chapter 5. In chapter 5, where they are keeping note, and God is ensuring the seed line, he provides a linear genealogy and he provides a chronology in other words he gives the years from the time that one was born till the time the next was born and till the time the following son was born when it comes to the segmented genealogies and maybe I should, if I'm going to talk about them, I should turn over to one of them here, and I don't remember where the first one is. Chapter two, oh, it's chapter 10 is a segmented genealogy. So let's, you'll see that here with Noah, even though Noah is in the seed line, you'll notice that there are segmented lines of sons and sons born to those sons, and so on. And they give you a brief history, as it were, of the entire family, or the whole family tree. If you look over at chapter 25, and, and you notice here, when you look at these, look at chapter 25 and verse 12. <coughs> I think there's something significant here, and that is this, is that in these genealogies, they do not give any years. All they do is tell you a few little historical notes about the family, but years are not given. 
But when it comes to giving the linear genealogies, then the years are provided. And I think that's significant in that God is giving to us um, and also pointing out to us the significance of this key word in the book of Genesis, this word seed, that God has begun from the very first chapter with trees and herbs and seed producing after its kind. And what I think there is there is a hint of the when a tree or an herb that God has made to produce after its kind, so in the line of the royal seed, this kingly line that God has established beginning with Adam, they produce after their kind. In other words, if you follow through all of these men, and and they all follow through with male descendants, at this point, along with all of the bumps and the bruises, And the sins that were committed by these various ones, and we do know about people like Abraham, people like Isaac, people like Jacob, and the various things that they were involved in, God still held to his promise through them to provide the seed and the pro- uh, to fulfill his promise of a seed through them. And, the, of course, we know about his promise to them of the inheritance, that it would come through them. They did not all walk an easy road. As a matter of fact, there's one uh, message I heard, a guy preached through the Hebrews chapter 11, you know, and he pointed out every single one of these guys were, you know, were not royal stars, you know, they were not perfect. But God demonstrated his loyalty to them because of the, of the commitment and promise God had made to have a royal line. And so from that, we ought to understand that God's design and purpose about his creation and what he is ultimately aiming to do is to produce a line of men that will be able to fulfill this responsibility of what he created man for, to have dominion or rule over the earth. I find it always, always significant <clears throat> to me, too, if, if you look back, or oh, excuse me, over in Psalm 110... We'll just turn over there. I didn't really plan on doing this, but I think it's good. I always like to point it out because I think it's pretty awesome, really. Because it's a messianic psalm. 
In Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1, it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, that is, the Messiah. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And that word rule is exactly the same word that you find back in chapter 1 of Genesis, verses 26 and 28, where he says, let them have dominion over. So God is just saying, let man have dominion or rule over his creation. Now, coming back to... um, uh, I come to... I told you this is going to be a struggle for me. Um, I want to highlight in a little bit of time I've got left regarding this. Number one, you'll notice frequently, and we don't have time to really look them up, but how frequently God bypasses the firstborn. And I know you're familiar with that in the book of Genesis. There is such a thing as the law of primogeniture, which simply means the law of the firstborn. And that was a typical Eastern practice, that the blessing and the inheritance would go, and a double portion would go to the firstborn. But that didn't always happen here. As a matter of fact, frequently the firstborn was bypassed in favor of another And we saw that right from the very beginning with Cain and Abel. Um, But when we come, uh, what I wanted to point out here was when we come to, um, well, ultimately, of course, we, we come to Abraham and the promised blessings through him and then to Isaac and to his son Jacob and then ultimately to his 12 sons. And things get a little murky there because you have the blessing bestowed by Jacob upon Joseph's sons, and in particular, Ephraim. But in, as you well know, in chapter 49, I think it's chapter 49 of Genesis, he gives a special Word here concerning Judah. Regarding Judah, he says, Thou, in verse 8, I'm sorry, Genesis 49 and verse 8, he says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise, thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. 
Binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. You'll see that the blessing that is spoken of here concerning Judah is rather extensive compared to the rest of the eleven. And you might wonder, how is it, or why, if God allowed Jacob, and of course this was a continuous thing now, this blessing was passed on, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to his son, Joseph's son, Ephraim. How is it that Judah got into the picture. Well, if you look at First um, Chronicles, and you know what happened over there, the comments that are made by the chronicler in First Chronicles chapter five concerning Reuben. First Chronicles chapter 5, and this is what we'll end up with today, and I hopefully maybe next time we'll be able to point out some other things. In First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but forasmuch as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, and the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright. For Judah prevailed above his brethren, and of him came the chief ruler. But the birthright was Joseph's. What an interesting statement. Well, you've still got two sons between Reuben and Judah, you have Simeon and you have Levi. And if you look at chapter 35 of Genesis, so we got to turn back there. Chapter 35. as well as chapter 34. Now, you remember a little bit of the story here. Um, uh, I don't have time to recount the entire thing, but um, well, I'll just start with verse 25. It says, It came to pass on the third day when they were sore that two of the sons of Jacob, of course, that the... the uh, Citizens of Shechem had been circumcised and they waited until they were in the process of healing and were unable to fight and put up a, put up a good resistance. That's what he's talking about in verse 25. He says, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. 
Now, I won't read any farther than that because you know just exactly what happened. In chapter 35, verse 22, of course, you, you, you have a recount there of what happened with Reuben. What am I trying to say? Well, if, if you look in the genealogy in chapter 49, and I'm sorry, I'm pushing you along pretty fast here, but I'm only coming to this point, is that you find that Reuben's first, Simeon, and then Levi, and then Judah. The first three had disqualified themselves through their actions. Reuben through his immorality, Simeon and Levi through their hasty actions of going out and murdering and killing this entire entire city, entire group of people. So consequently, the seed line passed on down to Judah. And God, in chapter 49, then makes this this promise that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. I know that that, and it was kind of a ramble, and I told you I was going to have trouble putting all that together, and I'm not sure I did a good job of it, but my whole point of all of this is that key throughout the book of Genesis is this word seed and the fact that God was keeping alive through all the activities and the, you know, God just doesn't overlook the bumps and the bruises and the failures of those whom he has chosen. He lays them right out in the open and he deals with them. But yet, in every instance, and I didn't have time to point those out today, but in every instance, those in the line that God chose showed their faithfulness and their understanding of what God had promised originally in Eve of a royal line. And they knew what was to come. And they believed God for it. God did some miraculous things, some unusual things, to keep that line alive. You know, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, with all three of them, with their wives, all three were barren. And it took a supernatural act of God or an answer to prayer on the behalf of their husbands for God to keep keep the line alive, for them to bear a child and to keep that single seed. And so what I'm trying to, to emphasize and help us see here is how thin that little line is running right through Genesis. That one teeny little line of families 
that God has continuously kept alive all the way through to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his birth. And not one little instance, in a single instance, was it ever broken. Not one thing can we ever point to to say, whoa, whoa, there's a little hitch in the line right here. God has kept a clear genealogy, and of course we haven't had time to look at all of them by any means. But there, as you well know from reading Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, that the genealogies are, are succinct and clear, pointing all the way. One goes to Abraham regarding the promises. One goes all the way back to Adam. That this is the one. A royal, regal king in this seed line. And he has come. And I've got to quit. I'm going to have more to say about that later. Okay? I have more to say about what the implications of that then are for you and me as to the word seed. All right? I need to quit. I have to stop. Lord, we thank you for your blessings and promises to us. And that in your word, you have left it clear to the seeking eye and the hearing ear just what you've promised us and what you intend to do. And there is coming a day when that promised one will come back to this earth and he will fulfill that role in all its fullness. And those who have been faithful to believe and to walk in obedience, Lord, to walk with God, how important that is, as we see in the life of Enoch and others in the book of Genesis also. Let us walk faithfully with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.